Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, I want to ask the question this morning, how do you know that your religion is right? I think it's a good question, no doubt debated in the halls of the philosophy department on the university campuses, but I think it's also a question that we all ponder from time to time on our pillows. How do you know that your religion is right? Perhaps it's when you're growing up and you're beginning to question the faith and religion of your parents, or perhaps it's when you turn on the news and watch the war. The world can be a confusing place, and it seems like there are so many options. And I think this question is particularly difficult for us, isn't it, when you're in the minority, when everyone else is going the other way, and the culture around you is saying something else, especially when you know it's going to cost to stay the course. How do you know that your religion, or non-religion for that matter, is right? Well, I think that's the big question that these chapters are answering. Uh, As as we've been seeing going through the uh, book of 1 Kings so far, uh, we know that at this point, David is dead. Uh, The kingdom is divided into north and south, ten tribes and two, and numerous kings, I think about ten, have come and gone so far, And now we're at a new depth of depravity, a new uh, escalation of evil has occurred. Uh, Up until this point, it's been King Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who's been the benchmark of evil. But now, uh, if you look at chapter 16, verse 29, the end of chapter 16, now you'll see that uh, Jeroboam's been knocked off his perch. Now, King Ahab has ascended to the throne. Well, actually, it's kind of more like his wife, really, isn't it? Jezebel, who's wearing the pants, who's calling the shots, who's running the show. Uh, Queen Jezebel, King Ahab. And things have never been worse in Israel. You see that at the end of uh, chapter 16, verse 30 and verse 33. That Ahab... Uh, made an Ashrapol. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, here we are. But it's interesting, isn't it? At this point, that suddenly, Elijah appears. Almost out of nowhere. We know that he's... Uh, uh, a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, but we don't know anything about him up until this. He just appears on the scene suddenly in verse uh, chapter 17, and he comes to confront this wicked king Ahab with a word from God. So have a look at it there in chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither Jew nor reign these years except by my word. Now what Elijah is prophesying here is drought. 
years of drought, prolonged drought. And in Australia, we know what that's like, uh, don't we? Um, Years of drought. Uh, And in some ways, this shouldn't surprise us here uh, at this point in Israel's history because uh, of the prophecies in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the blessings and the cursings, that if Israel did depart from Yahweh, then this is the kind of thing that they would see. The skies above them would, uh, would be like bronze and the ground beneath them would be like iron and the rain um, would, would, would be turned to dust and it would be like this until they're destroyed. So it's not a surprise, this, this word from God, this drought that's being prophesied here. But it's definitely the backdrop, it's definitely the setting, the scene of these three chapters, 17 to 19. The word of God here dominates over Ahab, over Jezebel, over the people and over the land. But strangely, Elijah is spared. I say strangely because God uses unclean birds, 17 verse 4, ravens, to feed him, and a poverty-stricken Gentile woman, a widow, 17.9, to feed him. Both Elijah and the widow will find God's word true. Have a look at 17.6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 17.16. The jar of flour, this is in the widow's house, was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. You see, how do you know that your religion is right? Well, here, surely it's personal experience. This daily miracle, ravens, the jug and the jar that no doubt increased their faith in the Lord. But suddenly, in 1717, the steady provision day by day by day is followed by sudden loss. Her hopes that had been raised seem to be dashed. Val Ralph Davies notes the tokens of life set on her shelf, sat on the shelf, her shelf, while the fact of death lay in her arms. She literally had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And then her boy died. 1717. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and he laid him on his own bed and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. How do you know that your religion is right? Does it stretch through to the other side of death? But Elijah wasn't sent to every Baal-worshipping widow in Israel, was he? Chapter 18 takes this private, subjective experience of this one widow into the public domain, into the objective. The drought that everyone was experiencing was indisputable. No one could contest that. But how could they be sure that it was Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, that they should turn to and not Baal? Baal, after all, was the more traditional religion of the land. It had that kind of raw, native, indigenous vibe. Baal was, of course, the new state religion as well. Queen Jezebel herself made it look both attractive. I mean, you could have all your sexual gratification readily available for you at any shrine at any time. She also made it look very dangerous not to subscribe to this religion. Obadiah understood that. He became a kind of Schindler. You know the story of Schindler. And he had, well, here, Obadiah had his own list, 100 prophets hidden in caves that he fed, 18 verse 13. And Baal, of course, was the fertility god, the weather god. Baal was a kind of prosperity gospel that promised rain and grain and wine and that everything would go well and be pregnant with life. So the jury was still out, surely. God had promised, chapter 18, verse 1, through Elijah, that, a rain, that rain would return, it would, be, it would come, it would be sent. But what was needed was some kind of test, don't you think? Some kind of experiment. A God contest between Baal and the Lord, some kind of verif- some way to verify this, to prove beyond reasonable doubt who really was God, if there was one. Of course, this had already been done before in Israel's history, but that was back in Egypt with the gods of the Nile. Now we're not there anymore. We've come into the land. These are new gods, different gods. And so it was agreed, chapter 18, verse 24, that the God who answers by fire, he is God. Baal, of course, was on home turf, home ground advantage, verse 20. Uh, he was in, is all going to take place on Mount Carmel, Baal turf. Baal had the numbers on his side, 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of the Lord, Elijah. Baal would go first. Of course, there were so many of them, it would take quite a while, so why don't they go first, verse 25. And uh, the crowd, of course, uh, was on the side of of Baal, uh, whipped into a frenzy. Have a look at verses 28 to 29. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. 
And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the evening, uh, the, the offering of the, of the um, oblation. That's the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no answer, no one paid attention. They had all day. They went from morning till noon and then till the evening sacrifice. Elijah even makes some toilet jokes to sort of egg them on. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awoken. It's interesting because I wouldn't recommend it, uh, but teasing, taunting, mockery. It is a feature of the prophets, isn't it? But there was no voice, no answer, no attention. And the implication is, no God. Elijah's turn came in verse 30. Interestingly, Elijah does everything he can to make this not work. Elijah makes it as hard as humanly possible. Elijah stacks the odds against the Lord. Instead of using dry kindling, he uses a great, big, sopping, wet mess. Verses 33 and following. In order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do, not, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. But, verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, simply, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you are turning their heart, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the bird offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord... He is God, the Lord. He is God. And then verse 40. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. 450. Israel was a theocracy theocratic state, a single ethnic political regime under the Old Testament law of God. And Deuteronomy 13, their law said, if you woo away from Yahweh, you do it to forfeit your life. Only after this, with the ground still smouldering, and the prophets laying dead on the ground. Yahweh sends rain. Verse 45. A great rain. Finally, after three and a half years of drought, it's over. It's over. 
How do you know that your religion is right? We'll stand on Mount Carmel and smell the embers. See, everything incinerated. Where once Yahweh's altar had stood. See, Baal and his bull still there. And the crimson stain running through the Kishon brook. And feel the rain on your face. And know that the Lord, he is God. There is only one true God. And his name is the Lord. Now we might expect a national revival after Mount Carmel. The people seem to have changed their mind. Ahab seems in a hurry to get home, verse 46. And he might be wondering why he is still alive. Is this the road to repentance, do you think, for Ahab? Has he learned the valuable lesson of Mount Carmel? Will things begin to look different in Jezreel now? As Ahab rolls out a new religious policy, what do you think? Whatever's going on here, God's grace to this most evil of kings is a bit astounding here, isn't it? That Ahab is still breathing. And the hound of heaven is still on his case. Have a look at 1846. The last verse of the chapter. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. I'll go back a bit. Verse 45. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and winds. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah... And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, the hound of heaven, still on his case. But old habits die hard as we enter chapter 19. Ahab told Jezreel, uh, Jezebel, who lived in Jezreel, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Well, here's a new challenge. How do you know that your religion is right when Jezebel is still wearing the pants? It's not easy. Look at Elijah's response in verses 3 to 4, chapter 19. Then he, Elijah was afraid. Now the word here, if you've got an NIV, it'll have a footnote, it can be translated saw, when he saw that she wasn't changing, that Ahab, the old scheme was still going to go ahead, Baal was still going to be king in in Jezreel, when he saw, or when he was afraid, he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for it is better for me, uh, better, for I am no better, rather, than my father's. Now, is this the same Elijah that we just saw on Mount Carmel? 
having just slaughtered 450 of Baal's prophets, is he now scared of a single woman? Having won the great victory, is he now wanting to roll over and die? Does he really think that he is the only prophet left when Obadiah has just told him about a hundred hiding in caves? Is he all of a sudden taking his own importance too seriously? Is this come some sort of self-pity party that Elijah's now having? What does he mean when he says, for I am no better than my father's? Is he acknowledging that he, after all, is just human like they are? Is he identifying with the persecuted run of prophets that have come before him? Had he hoped that Jezebel might turn over a new page and Baal worship might cease? Is he admitting defeat? Is this a moment of failure in another otherwise faithful ministry of the prophet Elijah? Or is he simply exhausted? He has run a long way. Suffering dehydration and physical fatigue. Or perhaps this is post-traumatic stress after the slaughter of verse 40. He's sunk somehow, has he, into some sort of deep depression. Or perhaps he would just rather die at the hands of a merciful God than a gloating Queen Jezebel. Whatever the case, don't be too hard on Elijah. Don't read too much into that rebuke, that question of God, verse 10 and verse 14. What are you doing here? Verse 9, rather. What are you doing here, Elijah? After all, it was the angel of God who sustained him and gave him food and sent him there. I rather like John Piper's poems about Elijah. He points out that instead of death, God gave him cake. He did. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Back in verse 6, and he looked and behold, there was in his hand a cake of bread and hot stones and a jar of water. It's beautiful, isn't it, how God restores a broken prophet physically, emotionally, spiritually. God even appears to him here in verses 11 to 13 in a very Moses-like scene after 40-day journey that he's run. He hides in a cave, covers his face and there at Mount Horeb, the same place where Moses had been, the Lord passes by. And Elijah is invited to, in a sense, pour out his soul before the Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for the Lord. He had, hadn't he? been very zealous for the Lord. They've, look what they've done to your kingdom. You see how he's, he's kingdom focused here, isn't he? Verse 10. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, your altars, literally, they have thrown down, and your prophets they have killed. He's kingdom focused. And his own personal experience is a representation of that too, isn't it? And I, even I am left, and I seek my life too. Then the, the, all those three things and God doesn't answer him in the, in the earthquake and the wind and all that kind of stuff. And then again, he gets, to, he gets to, again to pour out his soul, this time in the very presence of the Lord, verse 14. He says the same thing. It's wonderful, isn't it, how the Lord restores his broken prophet. So how do you know that your religion is right? Well, 
God may come alongside you when you're broken and worn out and quietly restore you and bring you new assurance. Because that's what he does here, isn't it? Chapter 19, verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. When I went to university, I studied science. It's a very boring degree. And people often say that the Bible is not a science textbook. But I can't help reflect as I look over this story how the Bible does use the scientific method. You know the scientific method? You can't do it once in one place. You've got to do it multiple times in multiple places. You've got to repeat the experiment over and over and over again to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that this truly is the case. Well, isn't that what's going on here? Exodus, do you remember? The gods of the Nile. Over and over again, with each plague, then you'll know that I'm the Lord. Then you will know that I'm the Lord. Then the Israelites will know that I'm the Lord. Then the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Then you'll know, then you'll know. And then, come chapter 19 of Exodus, surely they should have known, and so the law comes, you shall have no other God besides me. And then they come into the land, and what do we have? The God contest, Mount Carmel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. They get kicked out of the land because they disobey God and they come into Babylon and Assyria and they're in exile. And guess what happens in the book of Ezekiel? Forty-six times we read, then you'll know that I am the Lord. There are only 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Over and over and over again, this experiment is being done. So that we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt with the gods of the Nile, with the gods of the Babylonians, with the gods of the Syrians, with all of the gods, that there is only one God. And his name is Jesus. Because then we come into the New Testament and we are being shown once and for all, definitively, the final and great scientific experiment. What will happen to the Son of God when you nail him to a tree? Will they mock him and they laugh at him and they spit on his face? Jesus didn't come to slaughter all of the idolatrous, idol-worshipping people on the face of the earth. What did he come to do? He came to be that very lamb, didn't he? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, we don't advance the kingdom by sword anymore, do we? Jesus said, put away your sword. My kingdom's not from this earth. That's not how you advance the kingdom of God. Not anymore. But he did come to make a public victory, didn't he? Colossians 2, verse 15. 
He disarmed the powers and authorities. That is, every evil being that exists around this planet. He disarmed them on the cross. He made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them by the cross. And then the empty tomb. You see, God accepted this sacrifice, didn't he? And boom! Licked up. Not a bull, but a body. Not smoking embers, but an empty tomb. Look in and see. Then you will know. And they did. Multiple people, lots of people saw the risen Jesus and they wrote it down. Once and for all, then you'll know. How do you know your religion is right? Well, it might be. God's daily provision. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I open the pantry. It might be. The miracle child should have been dead. We prayed. He lives. But surely it is these big public historical displays where God wins. Exodus, Carmel, exile, Calvary. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the linchpin, isn't it? The trump card. The thing to hang your faith on. You see, there was another sacrifice, wasn't there? That God licked up. Not a plot of smouldering ground, but an empty tomb. That's how we know. So, verse 21, how long are you going to go limping around between two opinions? Living partly for the world, and the idols of the world, and the flesh and the devil, and maybe a little bit of Yahweh on the side. How long are you going to be indecisive? Today's the day, isn't it? Today is the day to commit fully, wholly to Jesus. To turn your life around, to repent. You see the Lord's turning our hearts back to him. He's showing us that he really is God. This is not, this is not, you know, people think about religion, they think it's like a fairy story. You know, you believe in Santa Claus and you believe in, you know, uh, fairies and oh, you believe in Jesus too, that's nice for you. No, no, no. This is historical. This is over and over and over and over again until we can't get any more of it. Then you'll know. It's real. It's not made up. We have more evidence for the pages of the New Testament, for the verifiability that Jesus lived and died and rose again than we do for so many other things we just assume are true. Good evidence. That's why we're Christians. Not made up, not fairy stories. So don't go limping between two opinions. Every day of your life, live for Jesus.
because he will come back. He is king. You see, Ahab rode into Jezreel, and it was, it was Jezebel all over again. But Jesus is now on the throne, perfect, righteous, reigning forever. And he's coming back to take a people for himself. He's looking for faith. He's looking for people who are living for him. And we need each other. I need you. You need me. We all need each other to help each other. Keep living for Jesus like salmon swimming against the stream. Because the world will tell you otherwise, won't it? Keep swimming. Keep going for Jesus. That's how you know. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this Mount Carmel. But we thank you even more, Lord, for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Help us to keep swimming against the tide. Help us to use our gifts to love and spur one another on more and more as we know the day of your return is approaching. And help us to know. Help us turn our hearts back to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au. Thank you.